to worship service with us this morning. We are so glad that you chose to worship with us this morning. Um, Sunday morning is a time that we get together to encourage each other, to spur each other on for good works. And so we're glad that you uh, joined us, joined us to do that and to worship and to sing and to pray together. Uh, there are a couple of announcements before we get started. Our youth group is going to have a service project with one of our missions partners this Friday, uh, August August 4th, from uh, starting at 12 o'clock. So if you have a student or if you are a student uh, going into the 6th grade through the 12th grade, uh, we would like for you to join us. Michael Anderson and Claudette Anderson are volunteer youth leaders. Uh, and they are leading a project to Crestview Area Home Shelter for the Homeless. Cash, they're one of the mission partners that we as EDC regularly support. Our youth group is going to go and serve there and then come come back to the church that night and just have a, night, a bonfire and a night of hanging out and worship together. So you can register for that online. Uh, Michael will be around uh, after the service if you're interested. He, he, he'll be able to answer those questions. Uh, he's also going to lead us in worship. Uh, this morning. So if you uh, if you have any questions about that, please uh, ask me or I'll help you get connected with Michael uh, for us if your student wants to volunteer with that. Another thing that we have next that we get to do as a church body, next Sunday we get to celebrate baptisms. We're going to have baptisms next Sunday, August 6th, during, the, during this service. So make sure you're here and get to celebrate with us. And then also it's September 3rd during the 10 o'clock service we'll have more baptisms. So if you are interested in baptism, if you have uh, repented of your sins and followed Christ, first step of obedience is to follow in believer's baptism. Um, so if you're interested in that and that's where you are and the Spirit is leading you in that area, please connect with me or with Shan uh, to get that conversation going about what it looks like to follow in believer's baptism. That's one of the, that's one of the beautiful parts about it being a church and being called to the same uh, to the same body of believers uh, is is seeing the ordinance of baptism another thing that we that scripture commands us to do is to be a body when we when we suffer when one of our body when one member of our body suffers we all suffer we lost a member this past week to his mr chip john fowler chip fowler uh he led in a lot of different areas. He led Financial Peace University for us. He was active in the men's ministry. And so we are, we are hurting. He died suddenly and unexpectedly on Tuesday. Uh, we're going to have a funeral for him on this coming up Saturday, August 5th at 1 o'clock. So if you meet Mr. Chip or meet uh, his wife, Chris, uh, they were in the process of moving in between North Carolina. So he's in North Carolina when he passed away. So be in prayer for his family. His wife's name is Chris. And she's going to be here on, on Saturday. We'll have a service for him. So be in prayer for his family and for our and for people in our church who he have relationships with. So, uh, so I'm going to pray. I'm going to pray for Chris and her family, and um, and I'm going to pray for our worship service this morning. The band can come on up on band. Father God, we love you. We thank you for today. We thank you for. The life that you give us. God, we thank you for the life that you call us to. God, we thank you for putting us together as your church. God, we thank you for your presence with us. We thank you that we can be called a manual Baptist church and be one behind you. Every Sunday that we get together, God, that you are among us, God. We pray that that would be evident today. 
God, we pray for people that don't know you, that their hearts would hear your gospel, that they would want to repent and turn away from their sins. God, we pray that that the message that goes out today would be heard. Father, we pray that you would help us worship well. Thank you for our worship team, and as they lead us in worship, we pray that we would we would know your presence is here with us. Uh, we ask these things in your son's name. Amen. Amen. Well, good morning, church. It's good to be with you. It's good to be together. I'd like you to stand. <laughs> Amen. We're going to read this morning from Ezekiel 37, 1 through 10. I think this is going to give us uh, a way to picture what God is going to do in the hearts of the Ninevites in Jonah chapter 3, which we'll study in depth later in the service. So Ezekiel 37 verses 1 through 10. The hand of the Lord was upon me, and he brought me out in the spirit of the Lord and set me down in the middle of the valley. It was full of bones. And he led me around among them, and behold, there were very many on the surface of the valley, and behold, they were very dry. And he said to me, Son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, oh Lord God, you know. Then he said to me, Prophesy over these bones, and say to them, O oh, dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, Behold, I will cause breath to enter you, and you shall live. And I will lay sinews upon you, and you will, and will cause flesh to come upon you, and cover you with skin, and put breath in you, and you shall live, and you shall know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I was commanded, and as I prophesied there was a sound, and behold a rattling, and the bones came together, bone to its bone. And I looked, and behold, there were sinews on them, and flesh had come upon them, and skin covered them, but there was no breath in them. Then he said to me, prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, thus says the Lord God, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain, that they may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath came into them, and they lived, and stood on their feet, and exceedingly great army. Father, we are so thankful for your perfect and holy word, that it has the power to transform us from dry bones into an army for you. Father, I ask that you would accomplish that miracle this morning, that there would be people here who do not have spiritual life. And through the word of your power, you would breathe that life into them. Father, I ask that you would help us not just to understand your word, but to be transformed by it. And I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Yes, Lord, we ask all this in your name, Lord. Help us to love you more deeply, to trust you more deeply, Lord. I pray you would stir our affections towards you, Lord, that you would prepare our hearts this morning to receive the truth of your word, Lord, and that it would pierce our hearts, that it would convict us, Lord. We ask all of this in Jesus' precious name. Amen. Amen. Would you grab your Bibles as you drop your seat and open with me to Jonah chapter 3. Jonah chapter 3. We read a minute ago from the book of Ezekiel, who is a different prophet, uh, called to a, a different calling, but equally difficult, perhaps more difficult in some ways. 
As we pick up in chapter 37 of the book of Ezekiel, Ezekiel has been in captivity for 10 years. What I mean by that is that God sent the nation of Babylon against his people as a way of judging them and disciplining them. That they had turned away from the one true God. They had become idolatrous. They had fallen into lots of different wicked practices. And God, in order to correct them and to produce a faithful remnant from amongst them, sent the nation of Babylon and uh, they conquered the city of Jerusalem. I, uh, Ezekiel was one of the people that was taken by the Babylonians into captivity, meaning they had to leave their home and go to Babylon now as slaves. Ezekiel has been in captivity for about 10 years when he hears word that now not only has Jerusalem been conquered, but it has actually been completely destroyed. And the, the last of the people of God are being marched to Babylon as captives. As slaves. And so he can picture in his mind this journey that they are going on because he has been on it himself. He had to march from Jerusalem to Babylon to become a slave. And as Ezekiel is wrestling with this information, that is when God gives him this vision in chapter 37 that we read. It's a vision first of this valley of dry bones. So these are not just skeletons that are people that are freshly dead. They've been dead for a long time. They're very dry. And God says to Ezekiel, can these bones live? And Ezekiel uh, doesn't have a lot of confidence that they could. He says, uh, oh, Lord, you know. In other words, I don't think so, but maybe, maybe you can do something. And he gives Ezekiel this picture in his mind because he wanted to help us to have a picture of what it means to be spiritually dead. He wanted this message to be communicated to the people. That though Ezekiel was imagining living people walking on their way to Babylon, they were walking, they were talking, they were breathing, their hearts were beating, yet they were dead. Because of their total... Uh, Rejection of God as Lord. They were spiritually dead. Though from the outside they looked like they were living. According to the relationship of God, they were not. And so God wanted to give Ezekiel that picture. He wanted to give us that picture. That there are people who walk and talk and breathe and their hearts beat. And they have physical life, but they do not have spiritual life. This is helpful for us this morning as we study Jonah 3 because this is the exact situation that the people of Nineveh are in. They're not only walking and talking like the people of God. They're, they're not even headed to slavery or captivity. They are in, according to the world standards, a great spot. They are part of the, the dominant nation of the day. They live in a prominent city. They are seen as powerful and secure but God looked at them and he said, though you walk and talk and breathe and though you go to battle and you fight and you look strong, yet you are dead. Because of your wickedness, because of your sin, because of your distance from me, you do not have spiritual life. And so God sends Jonah to Ninevite to tell them in 40 days, I will reconcile these two things, your physical life and your spiritual life will match because I'm going to pour out punishment upon you. 
you will be destroyed. This is an important picture for us this morning. Not only to understand Jonah chapter 3 and the amazing miracle that God is going to accomplish in their hearts in this story. But it's important for people here in this room. We walk and we talk. We breathe and our hearts beat. But unless God has done a miraculous work inside of you, you do not have spiritual life. From the outside, everything looks good. But apart from Jesus, you are dead in your trespasses and your sins. And one day, God will reconcile the difference between your physical life and your spiritual life. The Bible tells us that the wages of sin is death, meaning the thing that you earn when you sin is death. The Bible also tells us that it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, meaning at the end of this life, you will come before the eternal judge of all things. And so though you walk and talk, though you breathe and your heart beats, you might not have life. And so this message this, that God has for us from the book of Jonah, chapter 3, is the opportunity for the Holy Spirit of God to change that. And to transform dry bones into a living army for the Lord. So let's be reminded of where we are in the book of Jonah. In chapter 1, God corrected Jonah's wrong beliefs. About his sovereignty by sending the storm. And then in chapter 2, God corrected Jonah's disobedience by leaving him in the belly of a fish for three days and three nights. And so now as we pick up in chapter 3, we have a glimmer of hope that maybe Jonah could be the hero of this story. He's actually going to go and be obedient to the call that God has for him. So let's look now at verses 1 through 3. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah the second time, saying, Arise, go to Nineveh, that great city, and call out against it the message that I have you. Have for uh, to the, the message that I tell you. Excuse me. If you remember from chapter 1, this is a very similar passage that God is saying, All right, here's your chance, Jonah. You were vomited out of the fish. You say you're going to be obedient. So it's time to step up and to be obedient. Remember from chapter 1, God needed to send Jonah. God wanted to send Jonah because he had a very important message about Nineveh's sin. Their wickedness, their evilness had come up before God. That he was aware of their sin. He saw their sin. But he didn't just want to be aware of it. He wanted them to be aware of it as well. So he sends Jonah. And in verse 3 we see that Jonah actually goes. Jonah arose and went to Nineveh. According to the word of the Lord. And so God clearly saw the Ninevites' sin. And God, as the eternal judge of the universe, will do the just thing. He will make a righteous pronouncement against sin. And he wants the Ninevites to know that he sees their sin. And so he sends Jonah to speak the message that he gave. And so this is important for us to know that not only does God see our sin, but God also speaks to our sin. God speaks to our sin. 
that we cannot claim to be uh, ignorant about the sin in our lives. I mean, typically, ignorance is maybe inconvenient, sometimes embarrassing. And when I say ignorant, I don't mean like a lack of intelligence. I mean that you don't have all the information. You haven't been educated. You are unaware of something. So, for example, if you were unaware that your fly was open, that would be embarrassing. Right? If you're unaware of uh, this thing that you see in TV, but have you ever actually seen it in real life where the toilet paper is stuck to the bottom of somebody's shoe and they've got a trail behind them? If you were unaware, ignorant of that, that would be embarrassing. But at the end of the day, not that big of a deal. Well, sometimes we <coughs> claim to be ignorant when it becomes very convenient for ourselves. No, officer, I didn't know what the speed limit was. I'm so sorry. <laughs> Well, here's the thing. We cannot claim to be ignorant when it comes to our sin. Because what we see, not only in Jonah chapter 3, but all throughout the Bible, is that God not only knows about our sin, but He speaks to our sin. He makes us aware of how serious it is. There is no person who can claim to be ignorant in this way. Because that's not who God is. That's not His character. We see in Romans chapter 1, verse 20, that every person can at the very least know that God exists, that He has eternal power, divine nature, that because of who He is and what He's created, we should honor Him with our lives. We see in Romans chapter 2 that there are those who never received the law of Moses, the Old Testament, and yet there was a law written in their hearts. This is their conscience. They are aware of the difference between right and wrong. This is the image of God inside all of us. The Bible tells us we are made in God's image. That means we are like Him in many different ways. One of the ways being we know the difference between right and wrong. Don't believe me? Let me convince you of somebody who's smarter than me. C.S. Lewis said it in this way in the beginning of mere Christianity. He said, think of this. Everyone has heard people quarreling. I'm going to try not to read it with a British accent, but when I read C.S. Lewis, I hear it in a British accent, but I, I butcher that, so I won't do that. Everyone has heard people quarreling. Sometimes it sounds funny, and sometimes it sounds merely unpleasant. But however it sounds, I believe we can learn something very important from listening to the kind of things that they say. They say things like this. Well, how would you like it if anyone did the same to you? That's my seat. I was there first. Leave him alone. He isn't doing you any harm. Why should you shove him first? Give me a bit of your orange. I give you a bit of mine. Come on, you promised. People say things like that every day. Educated people as well as uneducated. And children as well as grown-ups. Now, what interests me about all these remarks is that the man who makes them is not merely saying that the other man's behavior does not happen to please him. He is appealing to some kind of standard of behavior which he expects the other man to know about. Anytime you say or someone else has said, hey, that's not fair. What you are actually saying is there is a, such a thing as fairness. There is such a thing as right or wrong. 
And regardless of who you are, where you grew up, what culture you're in, all men believe this, whether they admit it or not. That they expect the world to operate in a certain way. They expect to be treated by other people in a way that they believe is fair and right and good. Now the really hard thing about that truth is this. Can you be honest enough with yourself to admit that the standard you expect of other people, you have failed to follow yourself? If we're honest with ourselves, and we realize we're sinners, we recognize that is God speaking to our sin. He is making us aware of our great need to be saved. Now in the church, we have this issue where oftentimes we use words and we don't really explain what they mean. We talk about being saved a lot. We talk about salvation. Do you have salvation? And we go, well, what exactly does that mean? I want you to picture... Sometimes I think this is what we do in church. I want you to picture you're sitting on your couch at home, eating some potato chips, watching your favorite show. It's a good afternoon, right? And then I burst into the room. Whoosh, I'm here to save you. Going, what are you doing? What are you talking about, you crazy person? Get out of here. I'm doing good. What do I need to be saved from? It's a very important question to ask. We talk about salvation and being saved a lot. Do people always know and understand what they need to be saved from? Well, here's the truth. And here's the hard thing to admit, the thing that takes some true humility. It's God speaks to our sin. He makes us aware of our need to be saved. He makes us aware that he is the judge of all things. And that at the end of this life, you will be held accountable for your sin. Now, for me, maybe I could explain away a couple of those sins. Imagine appearing before that judge and having to give account. Maybe I could explain a few of them, but there is a mountain of sin counted to my name. I have no chance of explaining away that mountain of sin. I instead have an incredible need to be saved from that sin. I need salvation. And really the only reason I know that is because of who God is. Because he speaks to our sin. He does not leave us in the darkness. He does not leave us questioning or wondering who he is or how we should be living, living our lives. He speaks. And he lets us know that we need to be saved. And so, if we have this great need, how will we be saved? Let's look, turning now to verses 3 through 9. Now, Nineveh was an exceedingly great city, three days' journey in breadth. And Jonah began go into the city, going about a day's journey. Okay, so I hate to, to break the news to you, but Jonah is not going to be our hero at any point in the book of Jonah, okay? There's a couple ways you could read this phrase, three days journey in breadth. You could say that it would take three days to 
travel entirely around the, the city of Nineveh. And that's possible. Historically, we have documents that suggest that the region associated with the city of Nineveh was about 55 miles in circumference. It would take you about three days to walk around it. But I think a better way to read this passage is a little less literal when we say journey. Instead, it should communicate the idea that it's going to take Jonah about three days to travel throughout the city and to proclaim the message that God has given him to all of the people. But what do we see that Jonah does? Is it a three-day journey for Jonah? No, he goes about a day in, and then he says this. He called out. Yet 40 days and Nineveh shall be overthrown. Now this is true. This is at least part of the message that God has sent him to deliver. That their sin is so serious that God is going to take action against them to remove their wickedness and evilness from the world. And yet, if we're familiar with the Bible, if we're familiar with other Old Testament prophets, this is not the message that we expected. This is only half of the message we expected. Think of Isaiah chapter 1. God says to people through Isaiah, Come, let us reason together. Though your sins are as scarlet, they can be white as snow. How can our sins be cleaned and washed away if we would turn in repentance from our sin to God? This is the message we would expect because this is the message that is routinely proclaimed throughout all of Scripture. That our sin is serious, that we need to be rescued from it, and that we can be rescued if we would turn from our sin and repentance in faith to the Lord. Then He would forgive our sins and welcome us back. And this is not the message apparently that Jonah proclaimed. He gives us about half of it. Hey, your sin is so serious, God is ready to wipe you off the face of the earth. But amazingly, even though Jonah is only being partially obedient, he doesn't go to the whole city, he goes to part of it. He doesn't deliver the whole message, he just delivers part of it. God's word is so powerful, and God is still so sovereign, he's able to accomplish his purpose even through Jonah's partial obedience. Because he delivers this message, and the response is this, verse 5. The people of Nineveh believed God. They called for a fast. And they put on sackcloth from the greatest of them to the least of them. They believed this message that their sin was so serious and so egregious before God that he was going to wipe them out. And so they don't know what to do. They're not exactly sure how to respond, but they know that they need to cry out and hope for mercy. And so they, they put on sackcloth. This was the roughest, coarsest material. You wouldn't use it for clothing. But they take off their fine clothing and they put this on as a way of saying, God, there is nothing good in us. There's no reason we could be bragging about who we are. Verse 6. The word reached the king of Nineveh. Notice it wasn't Jonah reached the king of Nineveh, it's, it's the word. It spreads through the people. God's word is powerful. And he as well arose from his throne, leaving his place of, of dignity. He goes to a place of humility. He removed his robe. He covered himself with sackcloth and he sat in ashes. Now this is a very clear picture of the people of Nineveh saying, we see how serious our sin is. Because this is them saying, God, we recognize that we deserve, because of our sin, to be consumed by your wrath. 
We deserve to be returned back to ash and dust. The king wants all of the city to do this. Verse 7. And he issued a proclamation and published through Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, let neither man nor beast, herd nor flock, taste anything. All right, we're going to get kind of a strange picture here. This is the people of Nineveh acting sincerely, but also acting in ignorance. Not exactly knowing what to do, but just trying anything they can think of. And so not only will the people fast, but the animals are going to fast too. It gets even stranger. Let them not feed or drink water, but let man and beast be covered with sackcloth. And let them call out mightily to God. And let everyone turn from his evil way and from the violence that is in his hands. So you've seen chihuahuas wearing dresses, you know. But here we see the cows and the donkeys and the chickens and the ducks wearing sackcloth. It's a little bit illogical because the, the animals haven't done anything wrong. But the idea is clear. The people are desperate. We will be destroyed because of our sin if not for an act of mercy. And so they want the entire city, even the animals, to be crying out for God's mercy. Now, what is an animal that normally gets fed, who all of a sudden isn't getting fed, what's it going to start doing? It's going to start crying out. And so they're trying to make the uproar from the city to God as loud as possible. It's amazing that they do this, because at the end of the day, they don't really know all of who God is. They're desperate for mercy. But they're not certain that he is a God of mercy at all. Look at verse 9. Who knows? God may turn and relent. Turn from his fierce anger so that we may not perish. Now this is the clearest indication from this whole chapter that Jonah did not proclaim the full gospel. He told the people of Nineveh, guess what? God is a just judge. But he did not tell them he's also a merciful and loving father. They don't know that. They, who knows? We've got to try something. Let's cry out for mercy. Let's show our sincere repentance. Let's turn away from the evil of our hands. Maybe God will be merciful. Verse 10. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he had said he would do to them. So this is very important. The sackcloth, the ashes, the fasting, it wasn't just a show. They actually repented. They actually turned from their evil. They actually turned to God. And this just shows us again how powerful God's word is. Even partially proclaimed, it brought them to their knees in repentance. And there from their knees, God received their repentance. And today, God is still receiving our repentance. So we saw that he speaks to our sin and that he receives our repentance. Now, repentance is kind of another one of these churchy words. We, you probably don't use it in your day-to-day -day lives, but you actually do repent pretty regularly in your day-to-day -day lives. Uh, this is what it looks like when you repent. Going this way, and hop, and I'm going to go this way. All right, that's, that's a picture of what repentance is, okay? What I mean by doing this in your day-to-day -day lives is often you're like, oh, I'm going to the store, oh, forgot my wallet, time to repent. i got to go back home and get my wallet. 
Okay, but when we're talking about our relationship with God, what we're actually talking about is a turning away from sin and turning to God. And what we see in this passage is that when the people of Nineveh did that, they turned away from their sin and they turned to God, they were saved from the punishment that they deserved. Now, there are those here in the room who are wrestling with this a little bit because they've got important Bible verses memorized, like from Ephesians chapter 2, that tell us, well, hang on, we're not saved by repentance. We're saved by grace through faith, right? Okay, that is good and important. Please memorize that verse. Um, but we need to ask an important clarifying question. What kind of faith are we talking about? Because we use the word faith and belief in a lot of different ways. I can tell you that I've learned that it is raining in Kentucky right now. And you could believe me that it is raining in Kentucky right now. What would that mean for your life? Nothing. You're not going to go home and get an umbrella. It doesn't matter to you. You can believe in it and that belief has no effect over your life. That is not the kind of faith that the Bible is talking about. That, that through that faith we receive grace. Now instead we should picture this kind of faith. I would assume that everyone in this room believes that parachutes exist. Is that a safe assumption? 100% everybody in the room believes parachutes exist. I would assume that in this room... Though we all believe parachutes exist, it is a much smaller number who are willing to put on a parachute and then jump out of the airplane. Is that a safe assumption? 100% believe parachutes exist. I don't know what the percentage is of people who have enough faith in the parachute to jump out of the airplane. Those are two very different kinds of belief. So what this tells us is the kind of belief, the kind of faith in Jesus through which we receive grace is not just to believe that a guy named Jesus lived 2,000 years ago and did some good things. Instead, it is a kind of belief where we say, I trust that Jesus is my parachute. There's no other way that I could possibly be saved unless he holds me fast. And that is a kind of faith that transforms how you live your life. It is a kind of faith that demands that sometimes you jump out of the airplane. It is a kind of faith that leads to repentance. So it's a very churchy word, but it's a very simple idea. Which way are you walking? You cannot walk towards sin and walk towards Jesus at the same time. They're opposite directions. And so if you believe in Jesus enough to hold tightly to him and to follow him with your life, that means that you are walking away from sin. You are repenting. And so when we repent because of our faith in Jesus, God receives our repentance and he is pleased by it. It is a kind of faith that changes the direction of our lives. This is important to know. Jesus, a lot of people came and wanted to follow him, and he warned them. He said, be careful. I want you to count the cost. 
I want you to know what you're signing up for. And what you need to know is that if you are signing up to follow Jesus with your life, that means you are signing up for a life of sackcloth and ashes. You're signing up for a life of continual repentance, a continual turning from sin and turning to Jesus, because that is the kind of faith that you have in him. You trust that he's your parachute, so you're going to cling tightly to him. And the only way to do that is to run away from sin. But here's the thing. If you will clothe yourself in sackcloth and ashes, if you will clothe yourself in repentance and in faith, Jesus will clothe you in righteousness and holiness. He will clothe you in purity and salvation. He will clothe you in perfection. Because that is who he is. And that is what he offers to us. So if, if we're not careful, and we were to take Jonah chapter 3 out of the Bible, and to try to understand it by itself, you could very easily get the wrong idea of who God is from this chapter. Let me tell you what I mean. Let's read again verse 10. When God saw what they did, how they turned from their evil way, God relented of the disaster that he said he would do to them. So you're telling me that God sends Jonah to the Ninevites because they need to know that God is a just judge. But that once the people of Nineveh stop doing the bad things, the punishment for their sin just goes out the window? Does that sound like justice to you? I want you to imagine that someone you love, one of your family members, had a, a horrendous crime committed against them. You go to the sentencing, uh, go to the judgment where the judge is going to sentence them, okay? You uh, have so much hurt in your heart because of what this criminal has done against your family member. The criminal stands up and says, Judge, I, I admit it. I'm guilty. But I promise not to do it again. The judge says, Okay, sounds good enough to me. No punishment. You're free to go. How do you feel in that moment? Outraged. That's not justice. There is a, a right punishment that should be associated with that crime. There is a, a right and just do that comes for our sin. So what in the world is going on here? How can God look at the Ninevites who have perpetrated amazing evil against the world? Brutality and cruelty. Murder. And God just looked the other way. Well, that's not what's happening. Maybe that's my, what you assume would happen just from reading Jonah chapter 3 by itself. But Jonah chapter 3 is not by itself. It is an entire, it is one chapter in an entire story telling us who God is and about his character. And he is a just and righteous judge. He will account for every sin that has ever been committed. But he is also a merciful and loving father who has provided the way for us to be forgiven of our punishment. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21 says this, For our sake he made him to be sin who knew no sin, 
so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. God does not just look the other way about sin. That would not be just. But he instead provides the way for our punishment. God provides for our punishment. And he's done this through his son. That Jesus, when he willingly died on the cross, he took the full punishment of God upon himself in that moment. So that God could be both just and merciful. That he does not have to compromise either parts of his person, of his character. He is fully just and he is loving and merciful. And this is only possible because of the cross. Now the Ninevites, I understand, at this moment, they, they could, there's no way they could understand all of that, that all that is all that that means. They're working in ignorance. What is really, really interesting is that in Matthew chapter 12, Jesus refers to this generation of Ninevites as ones who would stand as an example of real faith and real repentance. So what that means is there must be some part of the story that we don't know. Somehow they got the full gospel. And for at least one generation, these Ninevites were genuine believers in the one true God. And they were saved not only physically, but spiritually. Because that's, that's what God is trying to do here. In passing over this judgment, in not pouring out his wrath and destroying them in 40 days, he is giving them physical life. But this is a demonstration of something much more important. A demonstration of the gift of spiritual life. He didn't just give them another 40, 50 years to live. He gave them eternity. Because he was willing to provide for their punishment. Now the people of Nineveh and the people in the Old Testament, they didn't know exactly how God would do that. They didn't know the name of the person who would take the punishment. They didn't know exactly what it would look like. But they knew who God was enough to trust in his willingness and his ability to save them. And so they looked forward to the cross in faith and in repentance. And in doing so, God provided for their punishment. We today, we know how God provided for our punishment. We know exactly what it looked like. We know exactly the name. His name is Jesus. And he willingly died on the cross for our sins. And so we look back to the cross in faith and in repentance. And in doing so, God provides for our punishment. And in doing so, God gives us spiritual life. Think back to Ezekiel. Son of man, can these bones live? I don't think so, God. Prophesy. See what my word can do. And as the Spirit of God blew through that valley, those dead, dry bones received life. This is what God can do in your heart this very moment. You walk. You talk, you breathe, your heart beats. But unless you have turned to Jesus in faith and repentance, you are spiritually dead. And one day, God will reconcile your physical life and your spiritual life. And unless Jesus is your Lord, 
he has not provided for your punishment. But that can change this morning. In a few moments, we're going to have a time of response, which means we're going to be able to have a chance to move as the Holy Spirit is leading us. You could come down front, and we could talk together from the Word of God how you can be saved from the punishment for your sin. But church, this also means something very important for us as well. There's an army in our city. Verse 10. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath came into them. And they lived and stood on their feet, an exceedingly great army. An army for what? Not for conquering another land, but for building God's kingdom. Our city is full of people who walk and talk and breathe and their hearts beat, but they are dry bones. And unless we are faithful to go to them and prophesy, to bring the word of God, they will remain dry bones. And so we have to bring the word of God to our city. Jonah didn't want to go to Nineveh. I think our call is a little bit easier. But it's no less important. We have to bring the word of God to our city so that his army can be raised to new life. Father, we're so thankful for your perfect and holy word. We're so thankful that you have provided the way for us to have life. We're so thankful that you allow us to walk and talk and, and, and to breathe and for our hearts to beat, even though we don't have spiritual life, because you are being gracious and patient with us, giving us time. Father, I ask that this would be someone's time this morning. That they would turn from their sin to you in faith. That your Holy Spirit would breathe eternal life into their hearts. I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Church, as you stand, go ahead and move how the Holy Spirit is leading you. If you need to speak with me, I'd love to talk with you. I'll be down here in the front. Move as God leads you.